Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 377 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17, Moonwalk 1 and 2. Orange Soil Last time we left our intrepid explorers midway through their first moonwalk. Gene and Jack were both working at a hurried pace, trying to complete the ALSEP setup within the scheduled time period so they would have a full 90 minutes to take the rover south to Emory Crater, their first true geologic stop. The problem was, the ALSEP setup was taking longer than expected. Now Gene began one of the more difficult tasks of ALSEP installation, drilling three eight-foot holes for the heat sensors. First he grabbed a battery-powered drill, especially made for moon work. As a side note, this was the ancestor of today's cordless tools. And so he began boring into the rocky soil to gather subsurface samples and plant heat-measuring devices. Gene had to grip the drill tightly and force his whole weight on it, but progress was slow and intermittent. The drill would find easy access for a few inches, then hit a rock and kick back. Gene's heart rate went up to 150 beats per minute. His hands hurt from squeezing the handle, and dust swirled in a sticky haze, and without warning, the rocky soil of Taurus Latreau would snare the three-foot-long bits as thick as candles with an unrelenting fist, freezing the drill and spinning Gene around like a drunken sailor. The soil and rock combination was tough as nails, and the work was consuming both oxygen and time. With the drill now stuck, Gene decided to use a jack to remove it from the hole. We got a little time because I got a lot of jacking to do. Man, let me let me finish the pan and come and help you. Now, there's not, not a lot you can do, Jack. I'll get the neutron flux ready. Well, thanks a lot. Okay. Come on, baby. I'm going to get this thing out now that I got it. Boy, you know, that's what you call getting down into your work. my comments till later. I hope this core is appreciated. Uh, Roger, Gene and I have worked in the back room that it is appreciated. Yeah, that makes me feel warm. I'll get it. You're going to have to bear with me. Man, I don't know what it did. I was afraid that'd happen. It's all those rocks. 
didn't go in that hard. Hey, Dino, uh, how about uh, slacking off for a minute there? You got pretty, going pretty hard. Okay. One more turn, I'll get up. I gotta hit an easy spot sooner or later. It seems that way. The jack Gene was using was made of a tripod and a lever, and he was pumping it like a car jack. While Gene was busy with this, Jack did his best to erect the gravity wave detector, a delicate package designed to determine how the moon oscillates during an internal quake. The gadget had to be perfectly level to work, a smooth procedure during their Florida practices, but almost impossible on the moon. It gave Jack fits. Gene was amused as he listened to scientists on Earth snarkily hinting that the scientists on the moon, meaning Jack, hadn't deployed their precious instrument correctly. In exasperation, they finally told Jack to use the tried-and-true repair method of giving it a good smack with one of their tools. But that didn't work either. Unfortunately, the astronauts repeatedly drove back to this site in time-wasting repair attempts before its creators finally gave up. Directions were now coming in fast and furious from Houston where geologists and scientists were packed into a room two doors away from Mission Control. Gene and Jack knew these guys well, since they had trained them and carefully mapped exactly what they would do on the surface. But once they got there and started having problems and making unexpected discoveries, previous agreements broke down, and the teams fought to protect their own turf. As the debates grew loud, Jim Lovell, who was assigned to filter their decisions for the moonwalkers, became more of a circus lion tamer than an astronaut. Jack was getting antsy because fulfilling the instructions of the other scientist was subtracting time from his own geologic plans. I was afraid that would happen, Jack muttered while he staggered over to where Gene was making only slow progress trying to get the drill out. Jack jumped on the lever to help pull the drill, but lost his balance and disappeared, falling into a small crater that brought a chuckle from Houston. But Gene was horrified immediately, worried that Jack might rip his suit. Eventually, Mission Control gave the astronauts the bad news. They were 40 minutes behind schedule, and the first day's geology time had to be trimmed. Okay, and uh, why don't we get you two guys together again now and uh, break down the core and press on. And uh, we got a little revision here to the EBA. I'll get with you in just a minute on, as soon as I find out what it is. And uh, Jack, while you come back here to the rover, why don't you uh, get one more rover sample in the vicinity of the uh, deep drill while you and uh, Dean get ready to take on the core stem. And because of being uh, a little bit behind here, what we're doing is we're getting prepared to uh, drop Station 1 in favor of doing Steno, over. Now I'll get with you on more details on that in a minute. Uh, how far behind are we? Stand by. We're about uh, between 35 and 40 minutes. And part of the problem is that... Uh, we're a little short on oxygen on Gene's quiz. It looks like it's a six-minute and four, six-hour and forty-five-minute EVA from that point of view, which means that we have to uh, we we'd have to leave Station One too early, which is another which is a reason to curtail Station One apart from just being behind, which is what the hooker was. Okay, Bob, I'm approaching the river over. I've got the core, the camp. The wrench and the rammer. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to breathe up all that oxygen. Well, it's something that you can't help. Even the surgeon agrees with me on that one. And 
So you're thinking, uh, Jack and Gene, what we're doing is we're planning on going to the west side of Seno in that boulder field. It's just part way out to uh, Station 1. This meant that instead of the mile-and-a-half trip south to Emory Crater, they would stop halfway in a boulder field near the crater Steno. Jack was not happy about this. Still, he couldn't repress his sheer delight at being on the moon and once again broke into song. I was strolling on the moon one day in a merry, merry month of December. Now, May. May. May the month. May, that's right. May is the year of the month. When then, much to my surprise, a pair of bony eyes. Sorry about that, guys, but today may be okay, December. Okay, the battery covers. Okay, Bob, the battery covers are closed. I'm going to go most switch one. I guess I'll just wave goodbye. You look pretty clean, so I won't touch you. Okay, thank you. The whole time, the astronauts stayed busy, but joking around was a wonderful stress reliever. And any time two little boys are sent out to play in a sand pile that big, they're going to have fun. This was the lark of a lifetime. But work called. They boarded the rover, and Gene floored it, but almost immediately reduced speed to a crawl over the thin, dark mantle of lunar dirt covering the undulating plain around the lander. The route was pocked with craters of all sizes, from tiny to large, and large boulders frequently forced him to detour. All of the hazards were partially buried, making what should have been a routine trip a rather risky undertaking. In addition, his duct tape didn't hold. The broken fender fell off, and they were flailed with a rooster tail of dust that spread before Gene as thick as a hailstorm. It was like trying to look through a waterfall of dirt, and since Gene was also driving straight into the sun, he could barely see where he was going. The wire mesh wheels of the rover collected some impressive dents when he sideswiped a few boulders. The valley was later determined to be the dustiest visited by any Apollo mission, and it posed a special problem. Jack and Gene were both grimy beyond belief, and their delicate instruments were coated with layers of dust that threatened to cause them to fail. Once they reached Steno, where they hoped to gather some prime samples, they found that time and terrain had again worked against them, and they only made it partway up the crater's rim. Again, whipped by dust, the astronauts made their slow way back to Camelot to adjust the stubborn ALSEP. They were also very aware they had to get that fender fixed with no repair shop within 250,000 miles. In total, the moonwalkers spent 7 hours and 12 minutes on the surface before going back inside Challenger to end their first EVA. They were filthy and exhausted. They had worked extremely hard and had not slept for almost 24 hours. The most welcome tool in the entire kit turned out to be a big paintbrush that they hung beside the ladder to thoroughly dust each other off before climbing on board the limb. Once inside, the Challenger seemed to have changed. It was no longer just their method of escape off the moon. Now it was their home away from home, their own little castle in Camelot, the only safe place they had on the surface of this strange new world. Gene silently thanked the men and women at Grumman who designed and built it. First, the astronauts pressurized the spacecraft, and it was like an oil can 
was suddenly filled with a blast of air. Bloop. The pressure forced the thin little hatch cover to bulge, reminding Gene just how fragile the limb really was. Stripping off his gloves was a painful process, and he wasn't surprised to discover the knuckles and backs of his hands were blistered with a fiery red rawness. His fingers felt almost broken, and he had to flex them to see if they still worked. The gloves were thick with multiple layers, and when pressurized, after they suited up, had become as rigid as the cast of a broken arm. Every time they grabbed something, they fought their stiffness, scraping their knuckles and skin against the unyielding inside layer. Next, Gene and Jack helped each other wrestle their way out of the bulky moon suits, which took up an incredible amount of room in the tiny living area. They were wet with sweat, so to dry them, they attached their helmets and gloves to the empty garments and hooked up the oxygen hoses to circulate air. That was like inflating a pair of big balloons, and it seemed as if two more people had just crawled into the limb. The backpacks were hung on the walls, but it was impossible to roll the suits up, so they laid them across the ascent engine cover, which pimpled up like a garbage can in the middle of the cabin, and press them as flat as possible. Now stripped down to their liquid-cooled underwear, they had a quick dinner, debriefed with Mission Control on Earth via a private radio loop, and played with some of the rocks they had stowed in the cabin boxes. Several of the 20 samples they had taken were too big for the bags provided, and Gene turned one over and over in his bare hands, examining it closely. Gene pondered how amazing. Cooled lava that had lain on the surface for at least three billion years, scoured by radiation in a vacuum for untold centuries, becoming a rock from another planet, and yet it looked so ordinary like so many he had seen on their geology field studies to Greenland. Crystalline, with tiny openings through which gas probably escaped during some ancient time, and coated with dark dust that smelled like gunpowder, and puffed away at the slightest touch or shake. Ordinary, but simultaneously extraordinary. Gene's fingernails were soon rimmed solid with black dirt, as if he had been digging in a garden, because he could not put the rock down. But Jack was frustrated, feeling they had accomplished very little serious geology during their first moonwalk, because they had spent so much time laying out the experiments. If for some reason they had to leave now, they would have only a handful of coarse basalt to show for their years of preparation. Mere samples skimmed from the top layer of Taurus Latrobe, and nothing to unlock the true secrets of the valley. Jean agreed. They had been acting like a couple of robots, the extended arms and egos of other people, responding obediently when they tugged their leash and not really exploring, which was what they had come to do. As if to mock Jack, the dust from the rocks made him sneeze. Gene described the fender situation to Mission Control so they could work on a possible remedy. They had to find a fix. Back in Texas, the weather was cold. With a high of only 44 degrees and a slight drizzle, dampening the reporters outside Gene's house. Christmas decorations glowed in the wetness. When Gene stepped onto the surface shortly after 6 p.m. Houston time, cheers and applause had erupted, and when a telecast showed him bringing the rover around the limb, Gene's wife and daughter could actually see him a quarter million miles away, driving on that crescent of a new moon in their sky.
toast of cold duck were raised. We finally put him there, Barbara told reporters gathered before the wooden Santa Claus. Listening to them land today was just fantastic. It's the happiest day of my life. The reporters asked if the waiting was easier the third time around. Barbara replied the apprehension was there, the nervousness, the excitement. You just can't do anything about it, she said. The lumps are always in your throat at crucial times, and the lumps got bigger as the years went by. At her side, Tracy rubbed an Apollo 17 medallion as if it were a magic charm. Barbara was once again the strong, supporting wife who knew her role in the Apollo epic, the one who had to face the media every time she stepped outside while playing hostess to a gang of friends inside. All of them thought they were helping her through this trying time, but in reality, they were just adding to the pressure. For weeks, she had been on display, both in public and private, and while Gene remained on the moon and then found his way back to Earth, his wife would bear the burden of taking care of everyone else, presenting herself as the picture of supreme confidence in order to reassure the entire world that things were going well. After a decade of this, it had become too much. She finally asked her best friend, Rye Furlong, to take care of things for a little while, saying she just had to be alone. But where could you be alone? Outside the house was almost under siege by reporters, photographers, and well-wishers. Two dozen people were milling about the inside, discussing the amazing thing that was happening on the moon and listening to the squawk boxes. Barbara quietly retreated to the bedroom, then to the bathroom, where she locked the door, turned on some music, and stepped into a hot shower just to get some peace. Beneath the steaming water, her formal manner wilted. The pressure overtook her, and her confidence finally broke. Barbara had toughed it out during the Gemini 9 spacewalk fiasco, and the Apollo 10 flip-flop near the moon. But she knew well what happened to Martha Chaffee after Roger died at the Cape. How Jeannie Bassett was crushed by Charlie's death in the Gemini days. What Marilyn Lovell endured when Jim almost didn't come home from Apollo 13. How she herself had felt upon learning of Jean's helicopter crash and she had consoled too many astronauts' widows through the years. No matter what she said in public, Barbara knew in her soul that there were substantial risks on every mission, this one above all, and it was unfair that she was not allowed to be afraid. Even if Jean died up there, she would still have to walk through the chaos and be strong, the ideal Mrs. Astronaut. The accumulated stress of a decade came together in a thunderclap moment of black and bitter despair, and she couldn't take it anymore. Barbara slowly curled into a ball and wept, pounding on the shower wall and screaming at the top of her voice in a place carefully chosen so that no one else could hear her. Women don't get calluses on their hearts. Thirty minutes later, she returned to the living room, calm and back in charge. Returning to the moon, Jack and Jean strung their hammocks in an X shape. Jack on the bottom near the floor where they stood when flying and Jean across the top over the engine bell. Jean's feet were against an instrument panel, so he was careful not to kick any switches while his face looked up the tunnel and the suits poked him in the back. This limb seemed so small, reminding him of the USS Roanoke. They were dead tired and slid fiberglass covers over the windows to create their own nighttime. 
Jean should have fell asleep immediately, but could do no more than doze, listening to the quiet, sweet hum of the spacecraft's environmental system keeping them alive, and Jack's steady breathing and occasional sneeze in the other hammock. There was an eerie stillness outside. No hushed breeze or patter of raindrops, no crickets or frogs, not even any air. Every hour that Jean stayed on the moon, the sense of absolute nothingness grew. He leaned up and pulled away the nearest shade to see if anything had changed. The motionless flag still glistened in the sunshine, and the earth still dominated the coal black sky. Nope, that's just the way things are on the moon. He put the cover back in place and massaged his sore leg and then unsuccessfully to rest. What a waste of time. Gene's mind whirled as he lay in the hammock wide awake. He was mentally and physically exhausted but felt he should not be loafing around in his underwear while there was a whole moon to explore just beyond that little hatchway. They only had about 60 hours left, and time had warped. When they were outside, the hours flew away, but inside the spacecraft, the clock didn't seem to move at all, and their rest period passed with agonizing slowness. Eventually, Jean slept. Eight hours later, Mission Control kicked awake the astronauts with Wagner's volcanic ride of the Valkyries. It was December 12th at 12.48 a.m. Texas time. astronauts were sleeping, John Young's team in Houston designed a way to make a replacement fender for the rover. 
engineers folded four geology maps into a 15 by 20 inch rectangular, only about as thick as a kid's Halloween mask, and taped the seams, then used screw clamps from the emergency lighting pack to attach them to what was left of the original fender. John talked Gene through the time-consuming procedure, and it worked. Here's how Gene recalled it years later. Innovatively on the ground, they came up with the go-ahead and uh, taking four geology maps that we had. We had many extra geology maps. And taping them together and then clamping them on the fender. But we couldn't do it outside the spacecraft because, you know, you get tape and you get dust on it, it doesn't stick. We had to make the fenders that night inside the spacecraft, take them outside the next day, and use a couple light clamps that we held, had held lights on in lunar module to clamp the fender on. And the unique thing about that little fix is the tape happened to be duct tape. You know, never leave home without duct tape, even when you go to the moon. But it was an innovative thing. When you have an emergency, when you have a problem, you got something to be fixed, and you can't call roadside assistance at that point in time, you come up with a fix. Now, it might take you, you know, you might have to take that, that, that bird down to the hangar deck for a few hours and, and, and recycle it and put it on the next launch. But if it's that kind of problem, you can come up with a fix. If you can come up with uh, something innovative to solve the problem at hand, because you need to get the job done, you need to get that, that aircraft off the ship, it's amazing how innovative human beings can be uh, when they really put their mind to it. Unfortunately, by the time the rover crew got the fender repaired and headed across Tortilla Flats, they were already 84 minutes behind schedule for the second seven-plus-hour moonwalk. In their second EVA tonight, the longest on the flight, they'll drive four-and-a-half miles south to the edge of South Massif or Mountain, retrieving rocks and landslide material that may have fallen from the top of the mountain. And they'll also check out this strange light-colored material to the west of where they landed. This is Jules Bergman at ABC Space Headquarters. Moonwalk 2 would take Cernan and Smith to Nassan Crater at the foot of the South Massif. This was 4.7 miles away from the limb. It remains the furthest distance any spacefarers have ever traveled away from the safety of a pressurized spacecraft while on a planetary body and also during an EVA of any type. The astronauts would be at the extremity of their walk-back limit the walk-back limit is a safety constraint meant to ensure that the astronauts could walk back to the limb if, for whatever reason, the rover failed. The next stop would be Station 4, Shorty Crater. Here the astronauts would investigate some strange colored soil. The final stop before returning to the limb would be Camelot Crater. Additional tasks for the EVA were to take another seven gravimeter measurements and deploy three more explosive packages. In the end, this EVA would last seven hours and 37 minutes, the longest duration EVA in history. Traveling further away from a spacecraft and covering more ground on a planetary body during a single EVA than any other spacefarers. Since the remaining EVAs were more about geology than any other subject, a few geologists believe that Gene should just become Jack's taxi driver and surrender some of the leadership role to Dr. Rock. But Gene was not about to do that. Gene would give Jack great latitude because he trusted him without question. But there was too much at stake. And Cernan's job was to make sure that everything was completed as successfully as possible. Collecting rocks was important, but they had other duties as well. You see, there was a basic difference between Gene and Jack. Jack was a product of mission control and the scientific laboratory environment, while Gene was an aviator. 
Jack thought if they got into trouble, the people back in the control room would get them out of it. But Gene knew from too many dangerous carrier landings that the people sitting behind consoles were there to help. However, the bottom line was that they were not flying the spacecraft. Gene was sitting at the controls with the ultimate responsibility of getting them back home. Additionally, just as Jack had become a pretty fair pilot, Gene had become a pretty fair lunar geologist and could look at the stone forest while he was among the pebbles. The result was that they were a good team. Jack precisely analyzing details while Gene provided a descriptive overview. Finally, the astronauts reached their first destination, a hole in a wall, at the foot of the South Massif. They got there by driving tilted along a steep slope, dodging craters and rocks, with the TV camera capturing the bouncing and rolling terrain. In 1-6G, the rover felt like it was about to roll over, so Gene made sure that Jack was always on the downslope side. For an hour, they explored boulders that had tumbled down the towering 8,500-foot mountain in some distant pastime. The benefit here was the boulders gave them Highlands material without having to actually go to the summit. In fact, they had tapped such a geologic gold field that Houston extended their time there to the maximum, and it was still frustrating to leave such a promising area. The dilemma of staying longer at a good site or moving to one that might be even better haunted every moon exploration and the scientists in the back room at Mission Control argued heatedly about what should be done. After some portable gravimeter and surface electrical property experiments, the astronauts drove off to the next stop, the rim of a small crater a few hundred yards to the north at the base of the Lee Scarp. The rover flew downhill so fast that it claimed a rover speed record. But once again, they were so far behind schedule that the pressure was on to accomplish as much as possible to make the minutes count. Time was added to some experiments, subtracted from others, and Jack and Jean lumbered around like a couple of dirty elephants, drilling, raking, scooping up rocks and samples, and getting fearfully worn out by trying to please everyone. Then... A bracket on the TV camera came loose, so Jack had to hold it tightly as they drove, cramping his arms even more and limiting his ability to work. They would travel a dozen miles and visit the craters Shorty, Laura, Camelot before the day was over, and Jack would take such a spectacular spinning fall while trying to collect samples that Capcom Bob Parker said the Houston Ballet was interested in his services. Again, the pressure of so many experiments cut into Jack's geology quest, leaving him frustrated. But he did have one gigantic moment. While Gene took photographs near the rim of Shorty Crater, Jack looked down at the nearby soil, which his boots had disturbed. Don't move it till I see it. It's all over. Orange! Don't move it till I see it. I've stirred it up with my feet. Hey, it is! I can see it from here. It's orange. Wait a minute, I put my visor up. It's still orange. Sure it is. Crazy. Orange! I've got to dig a trench, Houston. Uh, I guess we better work fast. It really is. The same color as 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 the same
At first, Gene thought he had been sucking too much oxygen. Then he thought Dr. Rock had been here too long and had overdosed on rocks. But Jack's mind was already churning with the immense possibilities of such a find. Gene was boggled by the sight, even after he verified it by raising his visor. The back room in Mission Control almost exploded. This was an unexpected treasure, like a Spanish conquistador finding jungle gold. But now that Jack had it, what were they supposed to do with it? Jack trenched into the patch as Gene fetched more supplies and Captain Video homed in with the color TV. Aware of the time limitations, the astronauts stopped talking and worked like a couple of ditch diggers getting paid by the job. As they bagged and tagged, the people in Houston debated about what to do next, for they were engulfed by a bonfire of curiosity. At first, the astronauts thought the presence of the multicolored dirt, which ranged from bright orange to ruby red and looked like oxidized desert soil, might indicate the presence of water or geologically recent volcanic activity. Could Shorty, a crater that was 110 meters in diameter, really be some sort of ancient volcano? If the colored soil proved that, then the moon's internal heat machine had not shut down 3.7 billion years ago, as most scientists thought. This would stand almost every existing evolutionary theory on its ear. But alas, when scientists eventually examined the find, they discovered the soil to be tiny spears of colored glass that were not of volcanic origin and about the same age as other old moon rocks. The material probably had come from as deep as 300 kilometers inside the moon in some distant age, spurted out of a surface vent by enormous gas pressures in a process known as fire fountaining, not unlike the fizzy eruption from a shaken bottle of soda. The gas propelled a spray of molten lava thousands of feet into the air and it cooled into the beads of glass whose coloration was decided by its mineral content. The theory continued that the droplets of glass lay on the surface for eons until covered by some lava flow from a true volcano which provided layers of protection from the eternal rain of tiny meteorites that would have destroyed them. Then along came the huge meteor that slammed into the moon, scooped out the crater we called Shorty, and in doing so, uncovered the colored soil, and it waited on the surface for thousands of years until Jack and Jean came stumbling along to find it. So while the orange soil didn't prove the existence of recent volcanic activity and thus alter the timeline of lunar evolution, it did contain chemical elements from deep within the moon. When matched up with green glass droplets discovered among the Apollo 15 lunar samples, scientists discovered they contained titanium, bromine, silver, zinc, cadmium, and other such volatile elements that were not imported by some stray meteor. Through these discoveries, scientists obtained information on the internal makeup of the moon that they never would have had otherwise, and scientists could unlock further moon mysteries. In years to come, experts would say the orange soil was one of the most surprising discoveries of the entire Apollo program. At the end of their second day, the astronauts' arms were as heavy as lead their hands were chipped, raw, and bleeding, and all they had was a little hand lotion to soothe them. After they had something to eat and settled down, Deke told Gene on a private radio loop that everything was fine at home. Not a peep from Black September. Gene was relieved to put the possibility of terrorism aside for a while, for something else dominated his thoughts that night. He was going down in history as the last man to walk on the moon for a very long time and had nothing prepared to say to mark the occasion. The press had never stopped badgering him about what he was going to say when he left the surface 
and he had dodged giving an answer because he didn't know. He had no electric phrase to inspire those who would eventually follow them. Gene turned to a blank page on his cuff checklist and made a few notes, praying that when the time came, something would make sense. How could he encapsulate in just a few words all that this meant, the magnificent things that the United States as a nation and as humankind had accomplished by escaping the bonds of Earth and exploring our moon? What could he possibly say that would have lasting meaning? Frankly, he had no idea and could only pray that something deep inside of him would come forth to express those feelings. It was tough being last. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 377 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 17, Moonwalk 1 and 2, Orange Soil. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by December 9th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 200 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Today, we honor our Nova Emoji donors. These donors have supported the podcast for eight consecutive years and receive a Nova next to their name on the donor page. And by the way, it is now the best time of the year to perform the Emoji Maneuver. If you make a donation before the end of the year and make a donation in January, you can quickly advance two emojis. And if you don't have any emojis now, you can quickly advance to the Rocket Emoji by doing the same. So, at this unique time of year, it is a quick way to get an emoji or advance your emojis. I had a few afterthoughts. Did you notice I didn't have to run the air conditioner on this episode? (laughs) It was much cooler, but the weather around here really changes, so there's no guarantee I won't have to turn it on next time. But it was nice not being so noisy. Well, I think that drilling eight-foot deep holes on the moon is probably the most physically draining part of the whole mission. Cernan's heart rate reached 150 beats per minute. He used too much oxygen, thus shortening the EVA time. You could hear that he was out of breath when he was talking. His hands were aching. Then the bit locks up, and it spins him around in a circle. And then the bit gets stuck, and he has to make an improvised jack to get it out. There has got to be a better way to fry this fish. With all the drill problems from the previous mission, I think we were at a point where we needed some more innovation. Or... The question I also had was, was that experiment worth the time it took to set up since it took away from so many other things they could have been doing, especially with the first scientist up there? Or, since this was the last mission for NASA, did they just decide to send the astronauts up with what they had, as far as drill-wise, and just let them do the best they could? Now, I did find it interesting that that drill was the ancestor of all the battery-operated tools, which we so much enjoy today. Personally, I would find it hard to operate without all the battery-powered tools that I have. Most of the places I use them 
for around here don't even have 120 volt power available for corded tools. If I am using uh, my circular saw, for instance, I have to get out my little generator and crank it up. But one day, in the not too distant future, I hope to have power in most of the places I need it. Moving on, let's talk about the gloves. Gene and Jack had to use these gloves like the previous missions. I think everybody was using the same gloves. Not the exact same gloves, but using the same type of gloves. Now, as difficult as they were to work with, and as much as they tore up the astronauts' hands, you would think they would have been some type of improvement with these. The guy's hands were rubbed raw and constantly hurting, but somehow they managed to sound cheery on the communications. I guess it was the excitement of actually being on the moon. For those interested in farm progress, we did have some good progress. First of all, from last week, or last episode, I mean, the, uh, we thought that they would uh, get through the rough-end plumbing, but they are not. Apparently, there is a shortage on five-foot fiberglass showers. Of course, they've had only five and a half months to order one, so it's quite understandable there would be a delay. On the plus side, the HVAC was roughed in. That's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. Now, they had a shortage, too. They ran out of flexible ducts, flexible air ducts. So they had to revert to the old pipe-style solid pipe ducts instead and then wrap insulation around them. But then, as the job progressed... We got into a new week, and they got another allotment. Apparently, these uh, flexible ducts were being rationed out to this contractor to use. So they got their new ration of ducts the next week. So they finished the job off with flexible ducts. So we've got the standard old ducts and the flexible ducts in the HVA system. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. As a shocking surprise, they poured the garage concrete. It was a cold day, and the temperature went below freezing the night of the pour. So I hope that works out without getting a lot of cracks. Now here's the funny part. You know, my daughters are moving beside me, one on each side, and their houses are at roughly the same stage as us. Now, the concrete people were supposed to go over to Jenny, my youngest daughter's house, and pour her garage. But instead, they mixed up the the last names. Jones and Johnson are their last names, so fairly common names. So they mixed up Jones with Johnson, and they went over to Stephanie's house and... uh, Poured her garage. <laughs> but the problem was, Stephanie's garage is bigger. So <laughs> they ran out of concrete and they had to call in another truck to finish the job. Now, this, of course, made Stephanie happy, <laughs> but Jenny, not so much that they didn't get her garage poured. But eventually, about a week later, they did pour Jenny's garage. So it's poured now. And Much to our delight, they installed our exterior doors and windows. This made us very happy. The house is now considered dried in, even though the garage door is not there. But uh, it's considered dried in at this point. Mrs. SRH took a picture and posted it on Patreon if you want to see how it looks with the windows in. The URL is patreon.com slash history. Just scroll down and look at the post. It's free to everyone. Also, I had mentioned 
that there was a big crack in the cement of the basement, and it was getting bigger. So, the cement people came back. Actually, it was while they were doing the uh, garage pour. They came around, and they uh, fixed that cement. And the way they fixed it is they cut it, then they jackhammered it into small pieces. And it, it, it was a big, huge section of that concrete they took out of the basement, dumped it in the dumpster, and uh, actually dumped part of it in Jenny's dumpster because my dumpster was full. <laughs> and and then they, to repair it, they had some thick rebar. I mean, that rebar must have been an inch thick. And they drilled holes in the existing part of the cement and they uh, left the other hanging out and poured concrete on top. So it's kind of rebarred together really good because, buddy, that was some thick rebar there. They weren't messing around. Now, will this work? I don't know that it's going to work because there was a, a spot where they connected the two pieces of cement where I thought they ought to had a seam there because I think it may crack right there. But, hey, they're the experts, so that's what we're going with, and I hope it works. Uh, the bad part was they got concrete dust everywhere and debris, too. Oh, my goodness. The, the stuff they missed loading out, they just left in there. So we've got debris and concrete dust everywhere. It's all throughout the house now, upstairs, too. So we've got a lot of cleanup to do. I guess, I guess it's going to be up to us to sweep it out. But it made a mess, I'm telling you. So, if they continue to, prog to progress at this rate, we may be in the house by February. I know that's optimistic, but it is just possible that we may not have to spend all winter in the camper, maybe just half. If we're lucky, we might get out of just half the winter in a camper. That would be great. So I'll have the next update in two weeks. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had several contributions and some increases on the Patreon. I'd like to thank Peter H. from Australia, who donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Mark C., from South Carolina, donated at the Orion level. We had an anonymous donor who donated at the Orion level. Dwayne H. from Wisconsin donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Dylan F. from Texas donated at the Mercury level. Alan N. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. And Jim B. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Mercury level. And I would also like to give a big shout-out to Martin G., who sent a very nice gift to me. It was a collector's edition of Man on the Moon, which was uh, my, one of my favorite books. And it's written by Andrew Chaikin, who is an excellent author. And I really appreciate that. It was a very thoughtful gift. And it's all boxed up nice. And I tell you what, that baby is nice. I appreciate that, Martin. Thank you. Our total Patreon donors are now at 246. We can't quite hold on to that 250 level. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 408. And our goal is 500 by the end of the year. Now, thinking about that, I realize we're probably not going to make that 500 because there's a like 92 we would need to pick up. But do you think we can make 425 by the end of the year? Maybe we should shoot for that one. Now, so far, November has been significantly fewer donations than last year. Usually November and December are good months, and we sort of make up some for the bad months then, but, but not so far this year. So, if you can't afford it, we would appreciate your support. To do that, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. 
Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's Donor Giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. The winner of the drawing for this episode will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet or the SRH Archive Magnet or two stickers or two static clings or two holographic stickers or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Don Irwin. Don Irwin, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 408 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Grant Stoll's interview with Gene Cernan, the Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Apollo 17 Surface Journal, Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 378 posted by December 9th. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and stay healthy. So long for now.